<laughs> All right. So one of the dominant ideological bedrocks upon which capitalism uh, has flourished is the idea of the unique individual, the sort of underlying characteristic personality that each of us is stamped with as defining as a fingerprint that supposedly sets us each apart and is there from earliest life all the way through our adult experience, providing a common thread. And this self is presented to us as something that is you can improve, but you can never wholly change or escape yourself. And in fact, so many institutions trade upon this currency, the idea that there is something remarkably unique that stays with us. After all, for example, the judicial institution feels permitted to lock people away for a couple of indiscretions early on in life for many, many years, the idea being that this person is dangerous or evil or bad or somehow has a character that doesn't deserve to. The institutions don't even trust their ability to rehabilitate the idea that people essentially cannot change. And the psychological institutions as well uh, have the diagnosis. And to question that diagnosis is to be in denial. Even in wonderful institutions that I have benefited personally from, 12-step programs, the idea that once you're an addict or an alcoholic, you always are, and to even question that is to engage in a dangerous form of self-deception is once again indicative of the grounding belief that there's something in us that follows us, a marker, a self, a personality, a set of traits that are stamped and indelible. And so many of the justifications for the, the way wealth is distributed and the way ownership happens in this country is based on it, of course. The other possibility, which is that instead of there being this monolithic, homogenous self that defines us, that in fact the human mind is an arena of multiplicity, has many different parts. Instead of having a dominant personality. In fact, we have different parts and internal play with different characters. And sometimes one character or set of characters comes to the front of consciousness and runs the show, and other times other parts <laughs> run the show. And the only thing that gives the illusion that we have a single character or identity or personality or self is that unending stream of language that carves a nice narrative over the top that gives us the illusion of coherence. But in fact, we are not anywhere near as uniform as we like to believe or as we're conditioned to believe by the world. The Buddha was the first major thinker without any doubt to question this belief. He had many teachings that said that there is no unique, single, defining personality or self. 
and that in fact when we observe our experience what we see are changing thoughts, feelings, body sensations, perceptions and that there is no particular single state that defines us. As time went on, some 2,200 years after the Buddha proposed this, the philosopher Hume in his treatise on, I think, human nature in the 1730s, uh, essentially provided the Western proof of the same. And then, of course, with the turn of the 20th century with Freud and Jung and all the Naomi Klein, Melanie Klein, and uh, Anna Freud, and uh, <laughs> Naomi Klein is a different person, yeah. That idea of the single personality began to be replaced. Freud, of course, proposed the tripartite mind, which is the idea we have an ego, a superego, internalized parents, and an id, the timeless craving of self-pleasure and aggression. And then there's also uh, Jung's archetypes, which he said were externalized and projected in our mythological systems, are simply representations of all the different parts of the mind. And then object relation theories, which, uh, such as Dion and Winnicott and so forth, that argued that we introject different subparts of the mind that are essentially inner people. There's lots of different ways we can carve up the mind. The Buddha had one wonderful system, Anusayas, A-N-U-S-A-Y-A, and he basically maintained that there are these underlying tendencies that the mind falls into, little personalities. One little personality we have is the, the little inner addict that craves pleasure. Then there's the grudge carrier, the self-doubter, that is counterbalanced by the grandiose self-exaggerator, the individual characteristic that we have that constantly promotes our own views and opinions about the way the world should be, which is balanced by self-doubt, and then there's the striving to be perfect. And these anusayas, the Buddha said, if we're not in mindfulness, which has no personality, it's just pure awareness, if we're not in mindfulness, the mind eventually like, uh, gets pulled like a magnet to one of these seven settings. So, there are other ways we could break up awareness. Internal Family Systems by Schwartz has a wonderful set I like. He breaks it up into uh, managers, firemen, and uh, exiles. Exiles are the repressed. Uh, managers are the things that allow us to manage our life so we don't have to feel the repressed feelings. And firefighters are the negative characteristics that come up and keep our repressed out of awareness when our managers fail. So, for instance, as I've, I've said before, if you're young and you struggle with uh, interpersonal communication when you're 12 or 13, you find yourself struggling to express your feelings and other kids ridicule you. What do you do? Like me, you learn to play an instrument when you're 13 and you practice it all the time because playing the instrument becomes a manager to keep your feelings of loneliness and lack of friendship and isolation at bay. So that manager becomes a coping strategy that keeps the feelings of lack of connection far away, the exile repress. And then eventually there comes a time when you can't play your guitar all the time to get yourself out of interpersonal struggles. 
maybe you're on a date, <laughs> or you're in an intimate situation, and you just can't do a guitar solo doing all <laughs> You know, and then when you struggle to express your feelings, then, then the firemen, the, the firefighters, which are, they're not firemen, they're not genderized, the firefighter, uh, come up, and in my case, that was drugs and alcohol. That was the way I then managed those, those feelings when my coping strategies didn't work. So that's one way you can break down the mind. Another way I'm going to talk about a little bit is the neural networks. I've broken down my own mind, <laughs> which break down sometimes naturally by itself. But by observation, I've observed it, and I can, I've managed to uh, see um, a lot of different parts. And this is by no means a conclusive list, but I'm offering these to you because maybe some of these inner characters will sound familiar. And at the risk of making myself sound like Sybil or somebody with multiple personality disorder, I'll forge ahead. I've noticed that in my left hemisphere, there's the taskmaster, which is the thing, the part of the, my mind that uh, organizes, is emotionally independent, that just solves um, problems keeps me on schedule, keeps me running like clockwork, always wants me to be on time, deal with my obligations, worries what the world thinks about me, wants to look good. Then I have the inner autobiographer that narrates my, my life. I have the soothsayer, which is the part of my mind that's a more ventral medial center, which predicts how unresolved issues will play out in the future, tries to predict the future. I, have, I also have a logical part that analyzes situations without any uh, emotional content. I have a pack animal, which is on my right hemisphere, that just wants to connect emotionally with people. I have a pleasure seeker, which is part of the midbrain dopamine reward system. I have a wounded child, which are all of those early experiences of rejection, shunning, abandonment, lack of love, lack of being cared for, that I don't want to feel, so I keep my wounded child tucked far away from sight. And generally, in my case, the taskmaster and the autobiographer and the soothsayer are, are responsible for keeping the wounded child far from your view. So whenever I start to feel the, or even the pleasure seeker, whenever I start to feel loneliness or lack of connection, I might jump at the idea of doing something, creating something to get love for myself so I don't have to feel that. Or I might immediately turn on the television set and try to give myself sensual pleasures of watching something to distract me. But I have all these different parts and they're vying for attention and that's okay. When the fact that we all have different inner personas, if they all work in unison and no single part dominates, then the different parts of the mind can be like an orchestra, each member, each part of the mind having its role. So throughout the day when I wake up and I plan my day, I might rely on the taskmaster and the 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 autobiographer to tell me what I haven't accomplished and what I need to do and how to break down the day. But then there's other parts when I need to let the, ta the pack animal connect with people to make its needs felt met. Or there might be times when I need to 
have the pleasure seeker uh, feel soothed and rewarded, or I might need to indulge the, I didn't even mention the inner creative child, the part of my, my early experience that my parents rewarded. My parents liked it when I drew and I played music. So the creative child needs to come out. So I, if I allow each part of the mind to have its time, then I can begin to have a mind that is both fluid and capable of meeting challenges and has different ways of responding. But what happens if one part or a couple of parts of my mind are tasked or burdened with my survival and they don't believe they can ever let go? That their role is my survival and if they ever quiet down or ever take a back seat that means I will perish or something bad will happen. For example, some people rely on the soothsayer, the, the part of the mind that predicts the future. Whenever any challenge comes up, they abandon acting and they just try to figure out what the world will play out like. And if the soothsayer is over-relied upon, then what happens is it becomes dysfunctional and it starts catastrophizing and it, it becomes impossible to detach from all the negative predictions about how the world will play out. Likewise, in my case, I had a pleasure seeker which I relied on to survive a wildly uh, dysfunctional family when my father was drinking and violent. I relied on the pleasure seeker to keep my wounded child at bay, so I became addicted to drugs and alcohol when I was in my teens. Some people I know have emotional connectors. They, the moment they're in a relationship, they can't think about anything else other than the, the relationship which they ruminate on. And every other part of the mind it falls by the wayside. But by far and away, as a person who works one-on-one -on -one with people, the, the one part of the mind that I see becoming the most dysfunctional is the taskmaster, the part that keeps us attempting to stay on schedule and looking good for other people. Uh, I've noticed that the taskmaster can take on and fixate on different areas or, or endeavors. One area that I've seen quite frequently is the taskmaster gets hooked on our appearance, how we physically look, which leads to excessive exercise, leads to fixation on how we eat, leads even at times to bulimia and anorexia, when the idea is my currency, my value, and my safety hinges upon my looking good. If I allow the taskmaster to utterly run constantly and monitor everything about food and how I consume, then eventually what happens is it becomes wildly dysfunctional and it won't turn off and it won't accept even the other parts of my mind that needs to uh, have some say. And sometimes in the case of bulimia what happens is the taskmaster which controls so rigidly the intake of food and appearance sometimes just there's an inner revolution where the pleasure seeker says, no, I need to have something. You need to throw me something, and it will eat, 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 and then there'll be remorse. 
Now, some people, the taskmaster will focus on achievement, having to create, write, accomplish, build, because, again, whether it's the appearance or achievement, the idea is if I'm constantly on the ball, if I look perfect or if I achieve a lot, then I will never have to feel the wounded child with its feelings of vulnerability, its feelings of loneliness, its feelings of abandonment, its feelings of being unloved. Some people can even use their activism and altruism, which are wonderful things. And all of these tendencies that the taskmaster can fixate on in balance are wonderful. They're coping strategies that look good. If workaholism becomes our taskmaster, people won't criticize us for working hard, but it can be not just a good thing, it can actually be a way to not heal all the wounded feelings, the wounded emotions, the wounded experiences, the memories, the traumas that need attention. So what happens when one part of the mind, like the taskmaster, as I said, becomes a tyrant, then other parts will rise up in revolt, seeking their day in the sun, and they too will be dysfunctional. The pleasure seeker will fight against the taskmaster. Or if we're in the soothsayer, always predicting the future, then a part of the mind that just wants to be in the inner punk and give the middle finger and say, I'm not going to deal with anything. I'm going to quit my job. I'm not going to worry about anything. I'm just going to move to India. I'm not going to worry because I can't deal with all this fear that I'm creating for myself. So that's what I'm going to indulge. So we go back and forth between the dominant part of the mind that won't switch off and the inner revolt. And this tendency gives the illusion that there's a, a lasting self. This is where the idea that there's some me, some identity that's lasting comes from. When one network dominates, many other networks or personas don't mature. If I'm caught up in the taskmaster and the need to achieve, then the inner creative child or the part that needs to connect emotionally and intimately with other people will not mature and I'll remain frozen. I know many people who are successful in their creative lives, but emotionally cannot be intimate whatsoever. They're stuck at age 12 or 13 when the agenda to achieve set in. So the goal of practice is to, one, develop what the Buddha said, an inner observer, a different part of the mind, which watches but does not take the shape of any one specific persona and can orchestrate, like a conductor, the mind. The, or the conductor doesn't actually play an instrument, well, unless you count that stick that they use, the baton. The conductor doesn't play, but he conducts. He says, now it's your turn, now it's your turn, now it's your turn. And what we do in meditation is we begin to develop an independent observer that can separate itself from all the different parts of the mind. So what happens in life if the observer merges or bonds or melts into one of the subparts, for instance the taskmaster, then I believe I am that part. If I 
merge with my craving, addictive, pleasure-seeking self, then that's who I believe I am. If I merge with the fear-based projections of the future, then I believe that's who I am. If I merge with my inner narrator, that's who I believe I am. If I merge with the taskmaster or the creative part of me, then I believe that's who I really am. But the role of Sati, the Buddha said, or mindfulness, is to separate from all these constituent parts and to be able, like a conductor, to give each its turn and to tell each, hey, you've had your say. Enough of you. <laughs> now, I played a little bit of a... I set a little agenda in the meditation, as you might recall... I said to observe what were the thoughts that pulled you away from your object of concentration. You might have forgotten, that's okay. In the future when you meditate, keep an eye out for what thoughts pull you away. Those are your managers that don't want to let go. The thoughts that pull you away in your meditation that don't want you to be present, that don't want you to relax with your own breath and have a little bit of time, those are the maladaptive coping strategies that you've been over-relying on. And we all have them, myself included. For the first, oh, I don't know, ten years I meditated, it was the inner taskmaster. What am I doing this? This is a waste of time. I'm just sitting here. What the, what the hell? Why am I doing this? I have so much I need to get done. Blah, 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 blah. Then, after that, I learned to quiet that part. Then it was the inner autobiographer. I'm not good at this. I'm never going to be good at this. I, I'm terrible at this. Other people are good at this. Look at the person to my left. They're really good at this. <laughs> so, the first role in our practice is to separate the inner observer from the inner subparts. And we can, in our practice of concentration, begin to see which parts of our minds we are over-relying on. The reason those maladaptive or over-triggered coping strategies or personas fire up is because the most threatening moment when the, we all know that our inner wounded child is going to come up is when we stop moving and we turn inwards and we become aware of the body, because that's how the wounded child speaks to us, through the body, through feelings, through emotions. So when you stop, when you let go of the busyness, when you become present and tune into your internal experience, guess what you are most aware of might make itself known, your wounded child. And so that's when your manager or your coping strategy will jump in and will say, Oh no! We're not going to do this. We're going to plan what we're going to eat after, after we meditate. <laughs> so, that's what concentration does. And um, the second part, and I'm just going to do a brief guided part. The second part is, in our insight, when we see one part of the mind, that is jumping up and grabbing hold of our attention. In insight, what we can do is we can ask it to step aside and feel into the wounded child that needs to be connected with. So whereas concentration just presents us with what part of the mind is 
overactive, literally an insight, we can actually connect with those wounded parts that we have been running from and give them a safe container so that, in essence, we can even allow the parts of ourselves that we're the most frightened of to have their own moment of awareness. So I hope some of this made sense. I'm going to just briefly, this will be no more than uh, five minutes. So close your eyes. And I'd like you to just bring your awareness back into the body. And bring to mind an emotional experience that's been dominating your awareness of late. It could be, for example, financial insecurity, not having enough money to do the things we want to do or feel secure. Or it could be a resentment towards someone that keeps appearing. And just see if you can bring to mind. Now you'll note that when we do this, there's a tendency to not only have perhaps the visual cue, the person that causes the anger or the something that represents the fear. But then the mind immediately rallies with a plan to deal with it. If we're angry, we might decide to not see that person again or tell them off. Or if we're financially insecure, we might have the predictor of the future telling us all sorts of negative outcomes, believing that that will prepare us. So what I'd like you to do is ask those managers, those inner personas, the part that tries to manage the experience through thought, and ask it to step aside, sit beside you, and just bring your awareness into the body, and just feel the somatic, the feeling that's beneath it's all right if nothing comes at first. Sometimes we have to wait until we're really triggered to do this. But if you feel even the slightest contraction in the chest or belly or throat, somewhere in the front, torso, chest, or facial muscles, those are where the wounded child, the uh, repressed, tends to first arise. And although these feelings can be, at times uncomfortable to say the least, the role of practice is to welcome them and say, it's okay, you're allowed, I can be with you. When we can be with these feelings that we've abandoned or run away from, then all the burden and pressure we've placed on our coping strategies in life and our defense mechanisms are reduced. We're less driven to succeed, less driven to figure out the future, less driven to seek constant distractions or pleasures. The greatest path to liberation is when we can hold all and be aware of all of our experience. And some of our experience speaks to us directly through the body and through feelings. So just create a safe place we can even nurture this wounded child if it's there. It's all right. You're allowed. I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. <laughs>